ATV Talk, the podcast. Sit down with your host industry professional, Leonard Duncan, as the men and women from the ATV world bring their behind-the-scenes stories to life. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Green Ball Corp, has been producing industry-leading tires for ATV side-by-side market for over 25 years with tires like Mongrel, Dirt Devil, TerraMaster, XC Master, Dirt Commander, and Groundbuster. They have a tire for your application. Top racers from GNCC, Works, and Best in the Desert rely on GBC Power Sports tires. So why shouldn't you? Go check them out at gbctires.com to see the full line of tires they offer. Thank you very much. TPR Stabilizer, a leader in steering dampener technology, brings you the new Q5 Sport ATV damper with better control and handling with an upgraded vane and seal system. Go check it out today, www.gprstabilizers.com or call 619-661-0101. Don't forget to tell them ATV Talk Sandy. Today we have a special uh, guest. We have Mike Coe and Danny Duncan here, and we're going to do a history lesson or go back in time, and we're going to talk three-wheelers and uh, get into the four-wheelers, but we're going to go back in time to 1969 when all this started. If anybody's looked at the ATV Talk group uh, post on Facebook, there is a photo of 007 on a three-wheeler on Pismo Beach, and I believe this is the start to the craze that we now live. What do you think, Mike? I think so. And welcome. Thanks, Thanks. for coming back. Hey, happy to be here. Uh, it's my pleasure to have you. Thanks, Danny. Uh, Dad, Danny, uh, I really appreciate you coming and, and sitting down with us because you were at the original show when Honda released this thing in 1969. Yes, I was. <laughs> and, and when I looked at that, I just thought, what the hell were they thinking? It was just the ugly little fat tired three wheeler. And I never thought I'd make a living off of that. <laughs> but uh, it turned out to be uh, quite a vehicle after they made some changes. Uh, Got rid of the fat tires, and then uh, it was more rideable. It was a uh, uh, pretty awesome machine in its day. Yes, we're gonna. Pause. I remember, like you said, the uh, we're gonna pause for a second. And he comes in. They want to get it fixed. Well, I walked out to talk to him, and. I've seen what a mess it was, and he uh, he says, "Can you fix this for me?" I says, "No." <laughs> he says, and he started to just pop up right away. He he says, "I have been planning this trip all year, and now you can't." I says, "If you have been planning it all year, you should have been here a year, year ago." ago. <laughs> 
Exactly. Because this thing needs way more work. Even even if I took it in, I wouldn't promise it for weeks. Yeah, and then you'd have to wait for parts. And and what kind of machine was this? It was the little rubber, it was the little uh, three-wheeler. Did he ride it on the beach? And he had rode it on the beach. But the big thing was he wanted it fixed now. And it was Thanksgiving, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. <laughs> and we worked well into the night. And this is when I was still at Valley. Yeah. Well, they, I, I'm, that's why I went to the Dieter show, is because I was representing Valley. And, nice. But uh, there's no difference today. I mean, the general consumer thinks that nobody has anything to do um, to prep for the big holiday weekends, so they don't bring their machines until last minute. I mean, right now, I know that this isn't what we're supposed to be talking about, but, you know, we have a six to ten week wait, depending on the job, just to get it in the door. And this is rolling chassis, motors we take, uh, other things that we take instantly, you know, uh, over-the-counter stuff. But roll-in chassis stuff, you know, whether it be tune or services, hey, there's you got to wait in line because I'm full. But yeah, but if, if you're planning something big, you, that's one of the things you put uh, at yeah. the top of your list is yeah. get your rolling stuff uh, fixed up. Absolutely. Well, let's get a little back into the history. We were we talked about the dealer show, and I had to put it on pause. And and these two just like to talk, so I walked away to get something to make the sound better, and they kept going. And that's what that that that's why we came in halfway on that story. You will be able to see that story in its full entirety on YouTube. <laughs> um, but in '69, we get the we get the '90. And it's the big balloon tires. Uh, how long did they stay balloon tires? How many years? Uh, I don't know for sure, but not. It, don't I? From memory, it wasn't too long. Uh, yeah, years. I'm not exactly sure either. I know a couple years, maybe, because there was so many complaints about you just couldn't get those things apart easily. You know, unless you took them apart every every trip and greased them and. Nobody does that. Uh, and Mike's using his phone to uh, to Google information so that we are a little bit more spot on with some of our history lesson here for the uh, for the nineties uh, and the one tens. Well, it didn't. The, the tire situation didn't stop us from putting big bore pistons in them no. and, and doing a lot of mods. Uh, the the most of the thing is was at that time was uh, the big boards because it was easy for them to do. Uh, gas was way better back then, so you gas could. Was really, actually, just the big board really packed it up, and uh, and then we started, you know, four jobs and and. Uh, Big valves and stuff like that wasn't wasn't an everyday thing on uh, on the little nineties at first. Did you make your own exhaust pipes? No. Who did you use? Do you remember? Most of the stuff. I don't remember what we used on the nineties. Uh, on the. Uh, 185s, we went to Bassani's. 
and, and use Bassanis. Right. But I can't remember what we used in the 90s. Do you remember? There was a number of them within, you know, the whole industry took off so fast uh, aftermarket, just like with, you know, any motorcycles and ATVs that are popular. Um, Big Al's, I think, had a pipe. Bassani. Uh, Bassani had one for the 90s as well? Yeah, pretty sure. I, I, there's a couple of different names that pop into my mind, but I I can't remember seeing them because, you know, I was still just a little kid then. Not that I'm much, much younger than you, but, but you have a little bit better idea. Yeah, I wasn't initially when they first came out, you know, 69, I was only nine, but I do remember them coming out at the, uh, I lived in Spring Valley uh, at a younger age, and I can remember I, at the time I wanted a Hodaka. <laughs> yeah. I wanted a. I wanted a uh, they were neat little wanted a, uh, What was the 90? They had names for them. I think the Ace was a 100, and the Combat Wombat was a 125, but they had a 90. I can't. Honcho or something? No, that was a Suzuki. Oh, maybe the Ace 90. I forget what it was. But I can remember kicking the tires on the three wheelers because it was Honda Lemon Grove. Right. And they sold uh, Hodakas too. I can remember looking at them, you know, and kicking the tires on them. <laughs> I thought Mitch was the only place that sold the uh, Hodakas. Yeah. I don't know who that is. I don't remember that one. Well, Mitch was a, a lawnmower shop, I think. It turned into a motorcycle shop because of the popularity of uh, the uh, lawnmower shop turned motorcycle shop. You got it only in America, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's too awesome. So we roll we roll through the '90 era. We got into the the split rim machines before they became 110s. 110s hit in 1979 yeah. is the year you gave us earlier. It was 79. I can remember. It was basically 10 years before they, they bumped the displacement. I believe it was mostly a stroke. Had a longer stroke and the cylinder was a little longer. Yeah. But long before the 110, we were already stroking them out and big born and we just put the spacer plates under the cylinder. Well, and then... Whoever was doing it was squashing rods. That so was Howell did that. Well, Howell uh, done that, and uh, Elmanson did a bunch. Of Elmanson too. done a lot of that. Yeah, Sam didn't agree with the squished rods. He uh, would rather you know stretch the motor out and run the full length rod. That was the other thing. One Ted's had longer rods, which would rev out a little better. But then you had to fit in the chassis. I mean, there was you know things like anything to overcome the obstacles you had to do to make them right. But then the theory, the the, the, the the mind is going over there yeah. because he's thinking about some of the things that he used to do. Sure. Well, we uh, we done what everybody wanted. They want they wanted to go faster. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was top speed when they came out? You remember? No, I don't. It had it to be. Wasn't like, very fast. Wasn't had to been in the thirties, right? Uh, well, maybe might have hit forty. On a downhill with yeah. a tailwind. Well, the 110s were a little stronger for sure, uh, noticeably. Um, still had the basic. I think they had uh, three-speed transmissions still with the high-low box with the low yeah. range. Yeah, right. we cut those off. Well, we cut that out. Yeah. 
got rid of the high-low box so you'd have direct access to the car. It's the biggest thing that by that point, again, since the modified 90s would come out, we were going to the junkyards and robbing all the S90 motorcycles for the four-speed transmission and the manual clutch. Because the Hondas, as you know, they all, the ATCs all had automatics. Yep. And that was a big plus, being able to shift the thing and having that extra gear as well. And it all interchanged. I mean, the yeah. engine was basically the same. It was, it was the same, basically. Yeah. Yeah. The top end was all the same. And then the S90s had, the earlier ones had known cylinder, mm-hmm. so it made them happier. Although I used to uh, make a mod where I run the oil on the outside instead of through the, the cylinder, up the cylinder one of the studs. Yeah. yeah. Figured it helps cool it by not heating it. Yeah, absolutely. Not even by then too, we were running oil coolers on and had them on methanol, hundred percent methanol and even Sam and others were experimenting with nitro mix. They ran strong. One of the hard things was actually had so much compression was starting them because they still had that lawnmower pull start. Yeah, and those things, yeah, if you didn't, I mean, there was a you know a way to do it right, but if you didn't know how to do it, and the first time you try and pull one or kick, you just pull that thing right out of your hand. If it, if it be just pulling it to free it up and it'd fire and jerk it out <laughs> of your hand. Yeah. So I way. am so glad they came up with Kickstarters. And I think yeah. even the, some of the early, the the first 185s, I think, had, uh, well, maybe it was 125s, had still had pull start. Yeah. Didn't the 185 have a pull start? It did. I believe they all had pull starts, too. They didn't come out with, a, I thought they didn't come out with a Kickstarter until the 200. Yeah, I think you're right. The 200X, yeah. right? In 83. But I think you're right. Everything was still a pull start. Yeah, because I remember pulling the 185S. <laughs> okay, to, well, to make that thing. It was a 185 first. The 185 yep. was kind of a bigger one. Right. It was yeah, a like, tractor. Like a big red. Right. The 185S was more of a sporty, smaller. Version. Yeah, you get confused. Yeah. And there was the 200, there was a bunch of them in there. Did they put a decompression inside that motor to allow it to pull start easy because it was a bigger motor? Did they have some type of decompression device inside of there? They probably did. I mean, even the... Uh, from memory, I don't remember. Even the XR motorcycles with the with the Kickstarter had cables that had decompression stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. I had one on my 600. Mm-hmm. And they had them too. Because the old 500s would kick back so hard and break your freaking leg. Had this too. Well, we had a, a 90 that the shop built, and uh, Lauren rode it most of the time, and he wanted to run nitro. <laughs> and so, my one and only attempt. At nitro, well, I won't say that it's one and only. It's the second time I used nitro, <laughs> and uh, uh, we lasted probably an hour. <laughs> and for the years, the rod hung on the spring looked like a big C. Wow! It just you know. What did you put too much nitro in there? Whatever we did, we didn't do it right. <laughs> did it did burn up the big end or the little end? Uh, it it didn't seem to break the bottom end, other than bending the rod. Broke the the, uh, the piston, the cylinder, 
the valves, everything got smashed. Uh, but the the rod was little C and uh, yeah. Back then, doing that, it was pretty inexpensive, right? No, that compared was, to prices today. Oh yeah, compared to prices today, yes. But then wages was sure. yeah, inflation and everything. Everything is uh, relative. Mm -hmm. What what did a do you remember what a cylinder and a head cost back then? No, I can tell you what a whole ducat. <laughs> I, I dropped one of them and broke a fin off, and the guy didn't want a broken, broken fin. fin. Uh, so I bought him a cylinder. It cost $27. Oh, man. But it was more the size. And, um, standard piston fit right now. And, but, uh, you know, that was what? Do you remember what year that was? I was still at Valley. So that was early 70s. It was before 77. Because I quit wearing <laughs> the Andrews machine in, uh, in 77. And see, that was, we were starting to get into it too, because again, 69, I was nine, but by 75, when three rivers were really getting popular, I was 15. And then I started getting in on the, on the bandwagon too. And I can remember at the time, there used to be downtown. Uh, where all those car junkyards were down by the Coronado Bridge entry, they had a cycle salvage in there too. And going down there with my brother, he had just gotten his license and we'd go down there and they had lots of, you know, S90s and, and other Honda and like the little yeah, Stetsu 90s and uh, Trail 90s. All the parts were interchangeable. And they give that stuff away and for it was, it was Yeah, it was way yeah, less expensive than, than buying new stuff. So that's where we and get back to the nitro thing. Back when we were doing that at South Bay, they had a term that they used for nitro. You remember what they called it? They called it pop. <laughs> they were running a little pop in it tonight because you could smell it. It would burn right. your eyes. Right. And uh, but they got that nickname because more than likely that's what your engine was going to do. Pop. When I was racing, we. Uh, went to an event up in LA and uh, there was about five or six of us there and the officials came over and made sure that we weren't running fuel mm -hmm. but when the, the uh, 200 class come up you couldn't breathe <laughs> behind it everybody else and uh, the locals were all running a, a something nitro yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, well, did you mix? They were running regular gas with nitro, or were they running alcohol with nitro? Uh, some of both. I run just alcohol for mm -hmm. quite a while, and then uh, a friend of mine had a mixture of gas and nitro, a pretty good dose. Made my BSA run pretty fast for a while. Yeah, and then it did, it went click like. Not really big. It broke the crank, uh, but it didn't screw up the piston or anything. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I decided to go back to fuels that I could control. Uh, well, they, you know, they had, even by the time the 110s came out, I think they were already running 180 cc motors. That was a, a very common combination. Was 180. 180. 
and it was the Honda 750 piston and a big stroker with a spacer. No, you, no, you could get 160. It was about the biggest you could get with with the the 90. With the 9110, you know the difference. I thought they could get to 180s. Yeah, we were running 180s regularly. That was, in fact, Sam had some some 110 motors. He had out to over 200 cc's with strokers and big boys and sleeves and stuff. Well, my uh, I built a bunch of not numbers, but using the, uh, the 750 piston. Mm -hmm. But you could get oversizes and you could get big boards. Right. You could keep the going. thing that controlled it, you could only, yeah. the studs were studs. only so far apart. That's right. Uh, I even thought about making a plate and expanding it. But the, uh, the thing is, is you had to start in third gear or take off very easy because you could lift the transmission yeah. out of it because yeah. the, it was designed for four horsepower and right. we were getting well, that's the thing. I mean, even if you look at a 180, that's already twice the displacement as it started. Started as a 90, now it's a 180. Right. And you're running on. Oh, you had to basically run them on alcohol because on gas they just get too hot. You know, they burn up. But the, you know, alcohol would be the only reason why things would live. There's so much fuel for them. In fact, anything on alcohol lets you know, burn a lot cooler. I, I liked running alcohol. Yeah, we did too. It was just as fast. At the end of the race, it exactly. Start. They didn't slow down, and it was good. We always had to. We just changed our oil because they ran so much fuel. It's like almost four times as much fuel when you run alcohol as you do when you run gasoline. I mean, if you run a jet, you know, it's oh yeah, yeah you drill them out, you're yeah. way bigger. But on the diameter, like if you say just for numbers, we start with a 100 on gas and put a 200 for alcohol. That double the size will actually flow four times as much, even though it's only twice as big. So there's a whole formula and the flow and getting them working. People had it sorted out because yeah. they ran good, man. They colored the plug, but because they ran so much fuel versus gas, there'd be a lot that would get past the ring. So they didn't wear quite as long because you're always uh, what they call washing the cylinders. Now. Right, and not lubing not getting it. the lube, so they would wear out. You got to put rings and stuff in a lot sooner. Do you think the quality of the metal they made the sleeves out of, uh, or the cylinders out of, was subpar back then because they they didn't understand what kind of materials they needed to make it out of? No, they knew yeah. because there was a new sleeve anyway. You had to basically bore the old sleeve out and put it, you know, like an LA sleeve or someone else's aftermarket sleeve in it yeah. to make it work. Did you do use a lot of LA sleeve or was it? Yeah. Uh, it seemed to me that we used some uh, 750 sleeves. They were already big. <laughs> yeah, that was the thing. I mean, you know, guys like your dad that had access to that stuff, you know, hey, this looks like it'll work, had the right wrist pin size. and Oh, that was the other thing. 110s went to one millimeter bigger wrist yeah, pin too. On the rod. Yeah. So that was helpful. I had a special ring on it that I could bring the rod out. My dad had those too. Yeah. But the, when you worked with the 110, it was a lot better. I mean, yeah. Because things were already designed to be bigger. They're a little more robust for sure. Was the tranny better in the 110 versus the 90? Or was it exactly no. the same? It was the same. It was about the same. 
Wasn't we, there an indexing mod that you could make to because one of the gears didn't go all the way in? Is, am I no, mixing that, that up? in the two hundred X's. Yeah, uh, you had to move things around in there and make them shift right and not jump out of gear. Yeah, we modified so they get better engagement because those dogs would always like so much engaged. Right. And with the added power, it just push it back out. Yeah. So they cut them so they come closer together for more engagement. I cut a set of cases up so that I could. Yeah, study it. Right? Measure that. Yeah. And you're trying to figure because if you move the one where it worked better on one year, one year, it fouled up the other one. Yeah, got in the way of the other one. It was just a poor design. Right. And you couldn't, uh, you couldn't fix it on the, the 200s. You could fix it. Did, did uh, the 185s? When you transitioned to the 185s, was it as big of a craze as the 9110 stuff, or did it not get be did not wasn't as exciting until they went to the 185s? I think it was exciting, but you know, by then so many people had three wheelers that it didn't have enough time, in my opinion, to really evolve because the ATC, the 90s and stuff, had already been out for. 10 plus years. By the time they came out with the 185s and the 200s, then they came, you know, the 250Rs were not long behind that. The so, biggest thing we done to the 185s was put forks on them. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff. The suspension was already coming in. We had suspension on our 110s even too. Right. We already developed yeah. that. Front brakes, things like that. Yeah. Okay. With, uh, with forks. Were they disc brake or hydraulic? I mean, uh, Disc brake or drum? I, I think I could remember drums. There was little drum brakes. There was disc brakes too. Yeah, they had a uh, one of the bikes had a lever operated uh, disc brake on the front of some model, and we put a bunch of them on. Uh, yeah. Um, Did you get involved with the trimotos at all? No. I mean, I rode them. Um, but again, it was, uh, you know, later on, it was Yamaha got a late start in it. And uh, Sam, my brother, was was already tight with uh, guys over with the Brock Lover's Place. And, Triple E? No, or, uh, 3B. 3B, yeah. 3B, and uh, Ace Williams was, was doing the tries and stuff. But um, to me, it was just, you know, they had, Tana had so many patents and copyright stuff that the whole geometry of the thing felt kind of funky. <laughs> you know, the way the gas tank was, I mean, they were still two strokes. So in that regards, in a straight line, they were faster than, than the you know, 110s and probably 185s too. And then they had a 175, which Yamaha had even way back in the AT1, CT1 thing. Just, just the they also, uh, if I remember right, took a twin and cut it in in half, cut it in half mm -hmm. and, uh, and was running the 125. Yeah. And it was pretty damn fast. Oh, they were fast. That's what I'm saying. But the, the way the engine was like really far back, so they would, you know, it was really difficult to keep them from wheeling, especially, you know, okay, stop. Once you started building them up, it was, you really had to be in a, out of a good riding position just to keep some traction on the front wheel. 
So, uh, I mean, they were still selling them. People like Young, just anything was so got to the point, like Chevy or Ford. Well, uh, that's a Honda. Hey, Yamaha's making them now. We'll buy some of those. You right. Know? Not everybody is race. Right. Brand. Right. And then probably for the stocker, they were, they were fine. They, they were fine. And yeah, again, you got people that are, you know, have brand loyalty and, you know, when the Yamahas came out and the Suzuki started coming out, everybody was, was trying to get in because three wheelers were that popular. Did Suzuki made a three wheeler? Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. I don't ever they remember seeing it. They that, made a neat little. Uh, they, they had a fifty. Too. Well, they had the little fifty for sure, but they also had, I think, it was a one sixty or something like that. It was a wow. Uh, I learned something yeah. new every day. I'm gonna have to go look that one up. It was a little four stroke uh, recreational thing that they had. They were trying to get involved, get some sales, and I'm sure they got. Them. Yeah, I mean, the same thing. People like Suzuki, so that was great until. You know, they came out with them. In fact, at that time, actually, when I was racing for Honda, my first wife was her, her and her brother owned California Suzuki. That's how I met her, going in there to get parts for one of my dirt bikes. And uh, the, their father was Roger House. He was the fire chief of El Cajon. And so we dated and we ended up getting married. And, but anyway, that they owned Suzuki of California. And, uh, I was going to retire from three-wheeler racing and become a fireman. That was my, my, which was something I really always wanted to do. But unfortunately, we broke up. Dad, dad life change. Dad didn't think uh, you should be a fireman. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Think so that, that ended that that career path for me. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Suzuki did, and that's what I'm saying. I remember going to the dealer conventions with them too, and they, they brought this inside. So they definitely did have some wheelers. That's so crazy. Yeah. That is so crazy. Cause I don't, I, you know, I mean, you remember a lot of stuff, but I don't, I don't remember that. Um, so when we roll into, we rolled right past the 185, one, uh, the 185S and the 185 and the 200 and the 200S, uh, which were more, uh, farm equipment machines. We're recreational. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the 185 and the, the 185S, and the 200s were more your recreational deals. The uh, other two were made, I think, more for uh, utility. Oh well, the big time. red, yeah, and then they had a, something else that was more big monsters farm implement vehicle. Yeah, but you know something. This is the strange thing, and I didn't learn this until you know well into my racing career. Is the the biggest sellers were those. Yep, they sold those the ones that I liked. And everybody thought was cool as with the ones we erased. But as far as sales go, they were way down on the list compared to the farm, the big reds and the four wheel drive ones. And stuff I, like I that. think they still are that way. Yeah. Very possible. You know, Honda still sells a ton of machines for the farm and yeah. for working. And even then, when I look back, some of the commercials, even Yamaha was pushing them as working on farms and stuff on the commercials, you know, pulling mm-hmm. little trailers and. I remember seeing something quite a commercial where they were the town there's three wheelers everywhere and they showed the school the parking lot and the school was all three wheelers yeah 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 I mean you have the whole cultures like I mean you go to Arizona UTVs are driving on the street you know quads all kinds of stuff Utah too. yeah did Utah too mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we live in this 
dungeon state where they don't let us do anything. Yeah, yeah. I was in uh, Moab in May. I took my Jeep and a couple of my buddies there, but a lot of the towns, especially that, you know, have nearby recreational off-road stuff, they let you ride your stuff on the street. Right. Certain, to a certain point, but you can ride it right into town, stop at the restaurant, take it to your hotel. It's all legit. That's like when we used to go across and go through the hole in the fence and go to, uh, you know, it's a little town. Algodonas. Yeah. And get tacos. That. Yeah, I did that too a number of times. Yep. Parked that. it at the fence, man. Had a little yeah, you know, whirly girl gate like this, man. You go through it. There's no border patrol check. No, nothing. Man. nothing. Well, there, there was a border patrol check. We were just a quarter mile right. or a half mile before it and yeah. pulled right into the town and well, is that the, the one I'm thinking of is when we went to uh, Buttercup. Buttercup. Yep, and that's it. That's it. Algodonis. Algodonis. You go down the canal. Through, so we went through a hole in the fence. And yeah. We just drove down. You know where the cemetery was? Yeah. You go right before the cemetery or right at the cemetery? Pop right Well, even the, back then, remember, there was no division. If you were on on uh, on uh, the Buttercup side, you the way to get to the other side to where competition hill was is you went across the freeway right you know that was you just way clear traffic and you went across the lanes and you're on the other side but right. now they got that all closed yeah. off you can't yeah. do that anymore it's a, well that's because they found out how to make money anymore. yeah and a lot of those roads that they closed off now they've got that one entrance down by the that rest stop area and then you got to come all the way back there used to be just an exit right there and there was some trees and the old wooden plank road was right there yep used to be able to get off right there there was a hole in the fence yeah was an old piece of road there still is yep it's still there but yeah we used to park there that's where we used to park yeah and and okay now the border wall is so close yeah that you can't i mean you're just cramming the campers in there we i mean i i'll we used to ride over into the flats, which was in Mexico then, mm-hmm. you know, and you used to camp over there and you were in Mexico. Well, then the north side they called Gordon's Well. Yeah. And that's where that test hill was yep. on the north side of the freeway. But we always would come and camp and park on the south side, like we're talking yep. about, is that easy access. And wherever you wanted, wherever you were at, you could just cross over both lanes of the freeway and you were on the other side. Yep. Well, for- Camping and kids and everything, the first place was better. No, of course. And then yeah. we'd go over and sit at the bottom of the hill and watch the crazies yeah. go, go up and down. Mm-hmm. Some of them tried to go down as fast as they went up. Yeah. <laughs> See the picture over there? Yeah, that's it. That's, that's competition hill. And it, it, just out of the picture, that's where the store would be. No, that's not Glamis. Oh, it's not. Oh, okay, no. that's Buttercup. Then. Yeah. Buttercup, yeah. But uh, Glamis is almost similar to that. Yep. It, it looks it's next to the road, and you can you know come down and go to the yep. store. That's crazy. So it's amazing. The guy brought that in. I'm in my shop and says if I sell any, and it had a card on it. Yeah, because right over the hill, right there, is actually where the camping ground was. It was real close to where people would camp. Yeah. 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 Really close. That set of dunes, you, we'd ride that set of dunes over and That's over. because it was so close. It was so yeah. much easier to get to Competition Hill at Buttercup. Yeah. And because, uh, like, when we would go to Glamis proper, we'd always take that road, the first one, I think it was called Roadrunner. Yeah. Uh, Roadrunner was at the last camp, but I can't remember what the name of the road was. But we'd always camp there. And then you had to, it was a decent little ride to get to Competition Hill at Glamis. 
Yeah, unless you unless you stayed by the ray where the ranger station is now, and then Gecko, you can, Gecko is the name of the road. Yep, Gecko Road. It was just past the canal. Yep. Yeah, we all. I was never a huge Glamis fan. I was more of a, I was more of a Buttercup fan when I was here. That's where we bent the rod on the little (laughs) ninety. Is is that a Buttercup? Yeah. Wow. He he wasn't racing or anything. It was just he wanted more power, and and, uh, somebody told him Nitro was the way to get it. Yeah. Well, it was. You were. You got it for a little while. We we were out at uh, uh, Glamis, and we were at Comp, and we had a, one of the test motors, one of the first big motors that Lauren was building. This is way, 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 way back. And uh, everybody was taking rides on it, and that was my Dooner. I was getting to Dune ride it, and it, you could pull out, and I could be last and pull out and pass, drive right up behind the leader. It was that much faster than everything else. And one of the big, one of the race guys gets on it, Brian Fuller, and he dumps the clutch and he gets about 10 feet in the side of the motor, just comes apart, <laughs> you know, pieces all over the ground and everything. Oh man, I know Lauren just was so pissed. And I'm like, better him than me because he was going to break <laughs> on me, you know. If they're going to break, they're going to break no matter who's on them sometimes. And they were, yeah, when they were pumped out that much, they yeah. were basically not really that reliable either, you know. They're no. So, so ragged edge because they're bored and stroke so much. I tried to build right close to that point. But uh, sometimes you go over. Well, it's, it's nowadays you have to push the limit and push the limit and push the limit. And I think some of the materials that we get to use today are really good because it allows you to push that limit. You know, I mean, the, the technology in, in the metals and the technology in the way that they build the cranks, uh, you know, and the piston quality. I mean, a lot of that stuff and the, the engine design is totally different with the four strokes, with the short stroke and the big, and the, and the big piston. So just they just rev to the moon. When they come apart, it's just a total loss. But yeah, that's that's the thing is the cost when they do come apart is high. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, you go to a lot of the dealerships. Like I rarely go, but I can see a number of like brand new motocross bikes lined up in the back. You know, these kids who don't have a whole month, lot of money, and they'll buy this bike and finance it and. You know, trying to make a monthly payment, and they take these things out to Glamis and just run the snot out of them, yep. and they blow up. Then they bring it back, and the dealer tells them how much it's going to cost to fix it, and they can't afford it, so they just leave it there, and then they foreclose on the loan. So the dealership ends up with nearly new bikes with blown up motor. Right. It's just amazing how much the cost. Of, again, if it blows up solid, it blows the crank out through the case, and it falls off the head, and everything. Yeah, you're forty five hundred bucks. Yeah. All so over it. That's half as much as what they paid for the bike. Right. And it's only th- not even, you know, six months old. Right. Well, I made six payments. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I mean, that's, and then you're paying them for something like that is $200 a month. You yeah. know, so it's really not that much. But, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, with changing the oil and making sure they're tuned right and, and not overriding them. I mean, the, the, one of the biggest problems that I see. There's no education. When you go to the dealership and you buy something from the dealer, that guy is there just to sell that part. And he does not care about about educating you 
on how to keep it a lo- the longevity of life. He thinks that that kid's going to come back in a year and buy another one. Well, that kid's not going to come back in a year and buy another one because he still ain't paid for it. When, when I first started working in the shops, they would sell to the officers say, whoever came in to buy it. And some of them guys did not know how to how to ride barely, mm-hmm. and they were all interested in how fast it'll go, not how good it'll stop. Mm-hmm. And the brakes on a lot of that stuff back when I was doing it uh, were kind of piss poor. Mm-hmm. But we had had to go all in quite a few bikes that the guys fell off of or broke the chain, especially when the Honda 750s were. Uh, more than one broke a chain on the test drive, on the mm-hmm. demo, which was had miles on it, but not as many as it usually took to, to break a chain. Well, that's another thing that they really improved, too, is chains were way better than they used to Yeah, because it, it wasn't the Honda's fault. It was the damn fault of the other chain. It mm-hmm. was too much horsepower for them to well, step it up. Let's, let's deviate a little bit. And, and then we'll come back to my next question. Okay. Uh, when you were racing mm-hmm. and you would just, we just brought up chain technology and, and, and that it improved. How I remember in the old days, we carried a chain with us everywhere we went. And, and that was be, that was after you had already retired. Mm-hmm. So what did you guys do? We didn't carry a chain, but you know, when we were, when we were factory sponsored, everything you start with is always brand new. And by then, you know, by the 80s, chain technology had significantly improved. You had O-rings, steel chains. And I think that's what warm up because back in the 70s, it was just your old Roller chain. chain. Yep. And, you know, the lubrication plus the, the power that some of the bikes were coming out with was really stretching the limits and stretching the chain too right. but, uh, of the technology of the chain. I, I know if you put a roller chain on a bike like a Banshee, mm-hmm. you could snap it in one rock. Yeah, I mean, and then the motocross bikes had like the cheapest, junkiest chains. You're right. I don't know why they they would sell them like that because you basically, if you bought a dirt bike, you should be buying a chain at the same time because the stock chain is just not going to do it. Yeah, I bought a really high dollar mountain bike, all suspension, yeah. you know, badass Shimano chain. Yeah. I mean, all the good stuff on it. And I went out and broke it, the chain the first ride and I brought it back to the the mountain bike place that I bought it and the guy's face because they didn't put the chain on there that I paid for they put Ah. a different one on there and I handed it to him and he goes that's not that wasn't supposed to be on there Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know he goes "Uh, I I can fix it for you if you want to wait and I go no I'll I'll be back tomorrow the next day you know I was pissed oh man I was pissed but it happens I was only mad because I had to walk like three miles in from what I was riding. I was fortunate too when I was racing that I had a chain sponsor too. I mean, I could run whatever I wanted to at the time and the paper stock BID chains were were adequate. But if someone wants to give you a good product and pay a little bit of money and run their stick, I had a Subaki chain sponsor mm-hmm. back in the day. And you Subaki, don't hear you don't hear much about them anymore. Just kind of dropped away. RK is huge and DID is huge. huge. They were, they were making chains then. In fact, Honda had both. RK. RKs and DIDs. Yep. 
they would, you know, if they would basically had two suppliers. So if one got a little low, they had another. Well, something in Japan on about things like that, you have to share the wealth with the deals, just like the munitions was made by two or three different ones. Yeah. And so they. Everybody, they didn't have a monopoly on it. Yeah, everybody got a little, uh, yeah. a little bit of the, the pie. pie. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So let's get into a little bit of history on the 250Rs. Um, I know everybody knows that in '81 the the first version 250R came out with the drum brakes and the, and the kind of balloon front tire. Um, it actually had a disc front brake. Yeah, but it had a balloon front tire. Yeah, balloon tire. And had a drum rear brake. Drum rear brake. Yeah. Yep. I made it too, though, when you had disc brake in the oh, hands. Yep. And you know, another thing that people don't realize that in that time, 81, in 1981 and in 82, motocross bikes still didn't have disc brakes. They had drum brakes. So they, really? disc brakes came on three rollers before they came on the bikes. Yes, we had a 81 CR250. And I remember it was liquid cooled, but I don't remember. 82s were liquid cooled, 81s were still air cooled. We had an 81, or was it an 82? An 81 down there in the field. Yeah, the CR 250? Because that was cylinder would go on a three wheel. Really? It had better porting, much bigger ports. That was the whole hot setup, put an 81 CR cylinder on the three wheel. Okay. But then in 82, the motorcycles went to water cooling. And then, of course, it was a whole different ballgame. And that bolt pattern was wasn't the same. the same. Now, there was one year that was even on the water cools, it was the same. For one year, I think it was an 84, 84 CR250 cylinder would fit on the 85 tool. Really? And 86. And probably all the four wheelers, three of the quads, none of the quads. It's called the ATAC. Yeah, because Lauren did a bunch of modifications where he would port them and, and seal up the power valve, and, and they were they were good they cylinders. Were fast. Yeah. They were I ran cylinders. one for a while. Yeah, they were really good cylinders. You know, they had did some modifications where they would put either Yamaha pistons or Suzuki pistons in them. Well, they had, um, they were the first ones with the chrome bore, too. Right. You know, we had to move the chemical Yep. And I mean, that's where the, the, I mean, the chrome bore is where Lawrence started building those uh, 89 cylinders where he put the aluminum sleeve in them mm-hmm. and, and he would make it still, to make it still hard coat them. And, uh, do the four port exhaust and everything. Um, that that and that's where that's where the evolution when when Pro X came out with their cylinder. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is jumping way ahead of where I wanted to yeah. go with the conversation. But when Pro X came out with their cylinder, he was like, "Why are you not making this hard coated? Right. Make it solid aluminum." Absolutely. So he ventured off and made the PC cylinder, which is with solid aluminum. Mm-hmm. You know, and and change the the technology so that it would do, be a better better cylinder. Yeah, everything's like that now. These two cycles are all because all barely most all the four stroke stuff that I've seen. The the problem you have is you can't get the consumer it out of their mind. Oh, I want to bore my cylinder. Or I want to put a steel liner in it. Why? It doesn't dissipate heat the same way, and your reliability goes in the toilet. You know, and and they just. The, the, the education process from the guys on the forums hasn't caught up to what we actually know and what actually the professionals do. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the old school stuff is still talked about too much. 
no offense, Dad. I mean, we value your opinion, mm. but but that's what we had back then. That's right, we yeah. we didn't have uh, chrome bores and nicosil, right. and we've got a different bunch and, of different processes. And we can think about all that kind of stuff, but life gets in the way. Trying to make money to keep the doors open, mm-hmm. you can experiment with that kind of stuff. Not, I want. I don't want to change subjects, but do you remember when Honda came out with a porcelain piston and they did an oval cylinder? Well, they were testing it. it, it they were testing it in Baja. Do you remember? I remember. They, I don't remember a porcelain piston. I remember they had one of those. Uh, wasn't they didn't call it a two-stroke, but it was like a diesel thing that they had, and actually finished the Baja One Thousand on it. They run it in. Uh, GP and the 500 GP because it would uh, rev better. That's what the Honda was. Yeah, back in the in the Moto GP stuff. I just looked at a just a new magazine with it showed the picture of the yeah the oblong piston. Yeah, what it was and like. It was like that a, for several. It was years. like a V4, and then Honda made an oval piston, but it had two rods, so it was like you get around the rules. It was still a twin because uh, it was one piston, but it was like two put this side by side. But they had okay. to develop the oval rings and get it to seal. They there was a whole major. Uh, there was a lot into that. that. Yeah, they spent a lot. Of money but at the same time, they they put so much time and effort into that, but the, their own two stroke was still faster. Wow. So I don't think it ever. I mean, they still raced it and really developed it to the to the end, but. It would spin, it would have high RPMs and had, you know, like eight valves per cylinder. There's a lot of lot of uh, development that went into it, but still was, you know, like any four stroke versus a two stroke, got way more moving parts and more weight. Gentlemen, we're going to wrap this up. The, the history show, part one and part two, we'll get it aired. Um, thank you for sitting down, Mike. Yeah, no problem. Dad, uh, Danny. Thank you for sitting down with us. Three and four. I, I love coming here and talking to your dad and you. And it's, like well, you said, it's, it's a good time. Well, we really appreciate it. And thank you very much. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. All right. My pleasure. We'll talk soon, gentlemen. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. To you by Take Two Custom Tees. Screen printing experience that is dedicated to quality and customer service every time. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years' experience, Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs, and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org, or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. Duncan Technologies International. More than 33 years in the industry building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all the available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.